Hey, let's turn to First uh, John. We started a book study last week, the epistle of First John. How many are going for the Giants? How about the the Patriots? You're the only one. So we have the Patriot Court, like the Gentile Court in the Old Testament. The Patriot Court is right out these doors. No, just. <laughs> We're going to look at verse, uh, 1 John 2, 1 through 6. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. And he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. And he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. This is God's word. It's important to recap in case you weren't here last Sunday. Because the first chapter of 1 John speaks about... John is speaking about the incarnation of Christ, that it was God became flesh, and he lived with Jesus physically for three years, and he learned something in living with Jesus before Jesus went to the cross and rose again. He learned how to be real with God. He learned that dynamic that only comes in the love of Christ where you can really be yourself. Because that's God's heart. That's his countenance upon you. Because he knows we are just flesh. We are just dust. And we've all fallen so short. And the one thing that, Christ, that Christianity does not want to produce or create is a bunch of people trying to put on their own righteousness. That's actually the antithesis of what the gospel teaches. We're to bring our filthy rags, <laughs> our... Our, our lacks and our weaknesses to God, to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And he imparts to us his righteousness. And that can't, can't happen unless we are real. So what the first chapter was talking about is what it means to walk in the light means that we allow full exposure of, of our lives so that the healing can come, the forgiveness can come. And to deny that, we see in the first chapter, is just to deceive ourselves, to be blind, and to um, basically we're calling God a liar. And so on the heels, really you could put that whole flow right into this message today of chapter 1 because it, it, it goes all the way to, to verse 6. But that's the recap. But he kind of he lays out that truth and then he gives this exhortation. And he's saying, I'm not saying these things... I, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin because the idea is, wow, it doesn't matter, right? It, you know, we have this forgiveness and, and he's saying, well, it does matter. <laughs> but you need to have that confidence and understanding that when we do sin, because we do sin 
And the word sin is the Greek word uh, harmatea, which speaks of to miss the mark. That's all it means, to miss the mark. And Jesus is the only one who's walked this earth that has hit the mark perfectly. Hit the mark of perfect righteousness and godliness. And it doesn't matter who you are, we've all missed the mark. And because we've missed the mark, we have forgiveness. We have the blood of Christ. But he's saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that your life would become a life that's holy and and joyous and, and full of obedience to God in light of what he has done for us. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. How to have confidence. How to live life with confidence. Confidence before God and confidence in life. Because he lays out these incredible truths that truly give our hearts confidence in any circumstance. Good times, bad times, because we can question God. We can question ourselves. And I know that having a lack of confidence in our relationship with the Lord and just in our outlook in life is all brought to a lack of confidence is born out of an insecurity not really knowing who we are when I think of confidence I think of Jesus who it says at the last supper it says he knew where he had come from and he knew where he was going therefore he got on his knees and he washed the feet of his disciples that's the kind of confidence that God wants us to have where we know who we are We're real with God, we know where we've come from, and we know where we're going, that we're going to heaven, and that we have this assurance, and that assurance allows us to serve. That assurance allows us to obey. And true obedience from the heart is born out of true assurance with, with God. He says here, I write to you, little children. Jesus said, unless you enter my kingdom like a child. That's how you enter his kingdom, like a child. It's, you have to have the faith like a child. And what I, I, last week after I gave that message in chapter one, someone came up, he's not here today, but he's saying, you know, when you were speaking, I was thinking about my grandchildren. And I was thinking about how when I go visit them, my grandchildren run up and I'll ask them what's going on. And it doesn't matter what's if it's what it is they will tell me freely what's happening in their life whether they're bummed out whether they're they're discouraged whether they're happy and they'll give the funny details on the things that they're working up in those little heads and he thought about how he shared this with me last week and I wanted to I said I'm going to share that next week because it goes perfect with this passage he's saying how we get through life we we lose that Um, When we're like children, we're transparent. Ask a kid what he really thinks, he'll tell you, right? But we get our guard up, don't we, over time. As life goes on, we get jaded. And we get, um, uh, through the the discouragements of life and the rejections of life. And what God wants to do is get us back to that place. We are relating to God like God, our Father, our, our Papa, our Abba Father where we can run up on his lap and that we can find a shelter in him and just be ourselves. And the sanctifying work of the gospel is bringing us back to that type of faith. The faith like a child, the faith like a a son or daughter has with their parent or their grandparents, where they, they know that they're loved no matter what they do. 
So he writes that. He says, so I'm writing to you little children. And he's, he's writing, referencing the truth of what it means to be part of the family of God and what it means to really grasp the gospel. And he's referencing the goodness of God through the gospel, that we would be like children. God's goodness is so much more than our weaknesses. Yet John is not encouraging us to sin, but to realize who we are, to realize our position. And we see that in these, these few verses, especially in verses 1 and 2. So I want to talk about how the gospel gives confidence to your life gives confidence to your heart in three ways. It frees us from guilt, and the gospel overcomes our discouragement, and ultimately the gospel brings us self-discipline, and we see all that in these verses. First of all, the gospel gives us confidence because it frees us from guilt. See, it's not enough just to know the data of the gospel, to know the data of Jesus walked this earth, gave his life on a real Roman cross, rose again. There, there's, those are facts, but unless it gets through to our heart, and, and because m- most of us are guilt-ridden. <laughs> We're, we struggle with guilt. We have done things in the past that we regret. We have said things. And we carry guilt around, o- along with us. And the first thing God has to do through the gospel to give us confidence is deal with our guilt, to free us from our guilt, because guilt can be debilitating. And there's some of us in this room that are more prone to guilt than others. And that's why he says here that if anyone sins, or if anyone is guilty, we have an advocate with the Father. As children, we have an advocate. What is an advocate? The advocate is a representative. It's a defender. An advocate is a a legal proxy. Whatever that person wins, you win. Whatever that person loses, you lose. And he was a, he is a representative for us. He was a representative for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. He bore the sins of mankind. But he is also now, as the risen Savior, a representative for for you before the Father as we speak. He was a a dying Savior, but today he's a doing Savior for you. And we read that the scriptures that he is interceding on our behalf. In a sense, he's standing in the gap. And he's saying, Father, you know Pete. You know what a messed up guy he is. But Father... I have, you know what, I've, I'm, I've stood in the gap for him. I, I've given my life for him. And because I've given my life for him, you need to love him. <laughs> he's my advocate. He, he's representing me. He's defending me in heaven. Jesus, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now, not asking for mercy, but for justice. And what he's saying is, Father... It would be unjust for you not to accept Pete. It would be unjust for you not to forgive Pete. It would be unjust for you not to love all over Pete and bless Pete. It'd be unjust because I stood in the gap. I took his sins. I paid the penalty for his sins with my own life. Because I've done that, Father, it would be unjust for you not to bless Pete. 
He is my advocate in heaven. That's why we read in verse 9 of chapter 1, he is faithful and just. Because of the cross, Jesus is essentially saying to the Father, it would be unjust to condemn Pete because I became his condemnation. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is essentially saying right now at this very moment, because I have taken Pete's sin, I took his sin so he wouldn't have to. I took his record so that I could give him my record. Because I won, I rose from the grave because I defeated sin and death, he wins. See, he's our advocate. He's that legal proxy. And he wraps us into the family of God. Think of a courtroom. <laughs> you have the judge's bench. It's all high up. He's got the gavel, right? That's the father. He's the, he's the judge. And then we have a, a prosecuting attorney, right? Who's got the whole rap sheet on you. He's got it all. I mean, it's, it takes several truckloads to bring in the, the paperwork on your life. And he's got it all done, all the investigate. That's Satan. He's the prosecutor. The Bible says that he is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one, as Jesus is defending us, Satan is always condemning us and accusing us. And we get lost in the middle so many times. We don't know who to listen to, who to tune into. And I know if you're anything like me, Satan gets that voice in my life. And, I, and he takes all of my past and he pulls it up there and, he, and I go, oh. <laughs> And so here you are in the courtroom, you have the judge. Satan comes in and he starts rolling videotape. He starts pulling out, he starts reading remarks. And I'm just like sinking in my chair, like, <laughs> I have no, I'm guilty. Guilty as charged. My defense attorney steps up. His name's Jesus Christ. And he walks up to the judge's bench. He says, Dad, everything that's been brought against, every charge against Pete is absolutely true. I'm going, it's true. I'm dead. I'm dead meat. Life in prison. Oh, no. But he says, but dad, father, I have taken every bit of the punishment for those sins. And the gavel goes down and he's, God says, freed, justified, forgiven. Not by anything that I have done, but everything that Jesus has done in my place. He is my advocate. I think of when Jesus was talking with Peter. And in Luke 22... Peter vowed his very life to Jesus. He says, though everyone may leave you, I will never leave you. And Jesus said, Simon, Simon, indeed. Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. What he was saying to Peter is, you're going to go through such gut-wrenching guilt, Peter, because you're going to deny you even knew your best friend, which was Jesus. You're, you're going to be called upon to represent me and be my defender. And you're going to fail miserably. And it, Jesus says here in a way that he's going to allow that to happen. He's going to allow 
the guilt to come and for Peter to wrestle with the guilt so that he can comfort his brothers. Listen, everything you regret, everything that you wish you had never done, you had never said, God can use the brokenness of that to relate to others and help others. John says, I say these things because I don't want you to sin, but when you sin, when you do blow it, you have an advocate who was your propitiation. God uses the hard things in life and the mistakes in life and the failures in life to sift us and to sift us so that we can be pliable in his hands. You don't catch God off guard. When you sin, when you blow it, God's not like, oh my goodness, what do I do now? What's his problem? He, you never catch him off guard. And when we stand before the judge, when we stand before the Father in heaven, we won't be standing there before him on our own merits. But the Bible says in the book of Revelation that we're given crowns, which is amazing. We're given these crowns, but then all the saints in heaven are going to take their crown and cast it down at the feet of Jesus and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Because our heart is, it's because of him. It's because of Jesus that I'm here. It's because of Jesus that I'm forgiven, not by anything that I have done. He's my advocate. How do you help people deal with their guilt? If you go down to the bookstore, there are shelves and shelves and shelves of helping people deal with guilt. And there's usually two ways you could almost categorize every single book, even though there's many details and approaches. But one path would be, generally speaking, well, you're not really guilty. You need to, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, right? Uh, you're not really guilty, just you need to get a better self-esteem. You need to get feeling better about yourself. See, that's one path of dealing with guilt. The other path, path is, well, you need to get serious. You need to pay it off. You need to work it off. You need to get to church, and you, you can't drive to church. You've got to get there on your knees. And then God will, might really ex accept you. And both of those, those are the two applications of how most people deal with their guilt. And what John is saying is neither of those are the gospel. What the gospel is, is that Jesus took the full brunt of our sin, that there was a penalty for sin, there was punishment, and we were worthy of that punishment, but Jesus took it for us. He is our advocate. Jesus is our representative, and he's also our substitute. Notice here it says that he was the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but sins of all the sins of the world. What does that word propitiation mean? Well, it's hard to define, actually. Even now, after years of studying Scripture, it's hard to put a, this word in in this, this one word in human words that, to explain it. But what it means is to satisfy the requirements, really. To satisfy God's requirements. It speaks of a substitute. It speaks of Jesus standing in my place under the judgment that was coming upon me. It speaks of love. It speaks of incredible grace. It speaks of sacrifice because of love, <laughs> 
to satisfy the requirements. See, Jesus is my advocate, meaning he's my representative, because he was my propitiation, because he was my substitute. He can be my advocate. And because of what he has done, you can be free from guilt. You don't have to deny your sin, but you don't have to be controlled by it either. You don't have to deny that you've made mistakes. You can admit and confess because Jesus has paid the price for you and you don't have to carry it around any longer. The baggage, remember, was it in Isaiah that he talks about the people carried their sins around like big burdens on their backs and, and how they, they, couldn't, they couldn't stand up under the burden. Some of us here, we're carrying around a burden. And you're, you're maybe trying to convince yourself it's no big deal or you're trying, you're not experiencing joy because you're trying really hard to overcome that and, and to make up for it and to work it off. Your answer is Jesus. And understanding the gospel that he has taken the pain, he has taken the beatings, he is our propitiation for our sins. And that's how we're truly free from guilt. So, confidence in life. We're, the gospel frees, frees us from guilt. Secondly, the gospel overcomes our discouragement. See, when we deal with discouragement, there is something that's happened in our life that we really wanted to happen, right? We really wanted this thing to happen or this thing to work out, but it didn't. And the reason is because there are other things that we look to to be our advocating element, right? We look to that status, or we look to maybe that relationship being loved by this person, and we're all looking to something to validate us and to be an advocate for us in this world. And we, when we look to anything else or anyone else but Jesus Christ, we're going to be discouraged. We're going to be discouraged in life. We're going we're gonna to face disappointments, and we're not going to know how to process those disappointments. We're going to take it personally. We're going to internalize all these disappointments if we're looking at anything else to be an advocating element in our lives. So the gospel wants to overcome the discouragement with us. The gospel is not just what he has taken, but it's what he gives to us. Tertullian, who was one of the church fathers in the second century, but he wrote this about the gospel. Just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so this doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite errors. He's talking about the internal, the eternal, wonderful nature of the gospel. Because that's what John is bringing. We have a, an advocate and a propitiation. And the way that we deal with guilt and the way that we deal with discouragement and the way that we deal with disappointment is usually, in a, humanly speaking, it's in, a, in error. And the way that we process the gospel, usually most people, is in error. Because what Tertullian meant, that there was two basic false ways of thinking, each of which steals the power and the distinctiveness of the gospel from us by pulling us off the gospel path 
of Jesus as advocate and propitiation for our sins. To one side or the other, these two errors are very powerful because they represent the natural tendency of the human heart and the human mind to either fluff it off and not care and be jaded and disillusioned and whatever, que sera, sera, or to feel like we need to work it off. And both of those in response to the gospel are errors. These thieves, we could call them, the thief on the left and the right, we could call one moralism, we could call one relativism. That's how every person is dealing with guilt, shame, disappointment, and discouragement in life. Moralism or relativism. Another way to put it is the gospel opposes both religion and irreligion. On the one hand, there's moralism, there's religion, stresses truth over grace, for it says that we must obey the truth in order to be saved. On the other hand, relativists or irreligion stresses grace over truth, for they say that we are all just accepted by God, it doesn't matter, there is no penalty of sin, and we have to decide what is true for us and what feels right for us. But truth without grace is not really truth, and grace without truth is not really grace. And those are the two errors. The real gospel gives us a God far more holy, far more moral, far more righteous that we can even understand. Far more loving, far more gracious, and far more accepting and merciful than we ever dreamed of. And we tend to miss it. And the gospel is understood from a juxtaposition. All of Jesus' teachings were a juxtaposition because we tend to want to formulize this faith. We want to know, we want to get the box. And we want everything to fit into the box. This is who God is. You know, here's how a marriage works. This is how the gospel works. And we want to formulize our faith. But truly to get the heart of the gospel and what John is talking to us, a life that's truly living life in obedience out of joy and willingness, not trying to earn God's favor and not trying to uh, just find out who you are and find your own path, but a, a life abundantly, is to understand these, these errors, these ways of relating to God and understanding that he is both advocate and propitiation. He loves us unconditionally and defends us, but at the same time, he satisfied the righteous requirements of the Father. See, the idea is there's good news and bad news in the gospel. There's good news and... The bad news is that sin is real, and sin brings death, and sin destroys lives, and destroys relationships. Sin destroys nations. And there is judgment upon sin. That's the bad news. And along with that, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news is that Jesus took all of that sin for us. The gospel is only understood when we understand the good news and bad news. The bad news drives us to the good news. But the good news is not good news until we understand the bad news. And John is saying... I write these things to you that you may not sin, but because you've sinned, we have an advocate and a propitiation. And we tend to want to 
relate to God in one or the other, through moralism or religion or just this whatever. It doesn't really matter. No, it does matter. Our actions do count. Our words do count. When we sin, it impacts many lives. And it pulls us off course. And it hurts people. It can even destroy families. Sin is real. But we also have an advocate. And we need to understand the seriousness of that, but then also the, the wonderfulness of, of God's grace and what he's done for us on the cross. I think of the Apostle Paul, who is the defender of grace, and you know he's speaking to the church in Philippi, and he's writing in the first chapter, he's saying, Man, I am confident of this very thing that he who's done a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. And he says, why? And it says, why? He's confident. He says, because you have been partakers of me through grace, of grace. See, Paul knew that the Philippians knew the grace of God and he wasn't worried about him. He was confident that the good work that was started in them would come to completion. But then he writes to the Galatians. He said, I'm scared for you. I'm scared for you because you're not getting it. You're trying to relate to God through legalism and moralism. And you're not walking in grace. And you're, you're, I don't know if you're going to make it. See, those are the two thieves. Or we have the prodigal son. And the whole story is not just about the prodigal son. And we, we understand that it's, uh, I mean, that's the title of the narrative. But there was another son involved in the whole narrative. The elder brother. So the prodigal son goes off and squanders everything, all of his inheritance. But he comes back, and the elder brother looks at this son who has received back and forgiven, and the father has been waiting for him, wraps his arms around him, and says, go kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a big party for my son who once was lost. Now he's found. And the elder brother is going, what's the deal? I've been here all this time. I've done the right thing. I've been faithful. And the whole point of that parable is to show us that neither of, neither of the sons had the heart of the gospel. Neither of the sons had the heart of the father. They were both missing it. And what John is trying to bring us to is to that target. We are both sinners. We are, we are more sinful than we even imagined. But at the same time, we're more loved than we even dreamed. The propitiation speaks of our sin, the righteous requirements of, the God, of God, that we have all, we're blowing it. But at the same time, we have this defender, this advocate. And that's where God is trying to get us, okay? We could say, we could even play it out into modern culture, where we have liberals or relativists, and we have conservatives, and usually conservatives, conservatism, not speaking economically or anything, but in, in, they're trying to patch things up. They're trying to live moral lives, which is good to live moral lives. But they're trying to gain God's acceptance. That's the tendency. That's the tendency. But then you have liberals that, you know, they're, they're like, no, God, find your own path, you know. Everyone is dealing with their inner condition differently but only Jesus Christ was our advocate and our propitiation 
None of these juxtapositions are in and of themselves the gospel. And there's no other religion like it. I think, think of a man who's walking along and he gets stuck in some quicksand. And he's there, waist deep. Walks, Confucius walks by. And you're saying, help, help, help Confucius. And he says, avoid quicksand at all costs. Well, thank you for that advice. I appreciate that. And he walks on by. Now, what he says is true, but it doesn't help me in my pre present difficulty. It doesn't help me in my present condition. And then walks by Buddha. And he, you start yelling out, help, help, get me out of this quicksand. quicksand. And Buddha says, whether this is good or bad, one cannot say. There is good and bad and bad and good, yin yang. Well, that might be interesting and philosophical, but it doesn't help save me. It does me, doesn't get me out of quicksand. Then walks by Muhammad. And you say, help, help, please. He said, no, it's God's will that you're in the quicksand. And then Krishna walks by. And you're saying, help, help. And he says, um, sorry. Better luck next time around. None of these, they, they're philosophies and they're ideas, but none of them help, help me. Only Jesus Christ, when he walks by, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I was the propitiation for your sins, and I am your advocate. And he took his sin upon himself, and he paid the ultimate price, and he is the only one qualified to reach out his hand, eternally speaking, and to rescue us and to save us. It's like no other religion. So what does this do? Number three. Brings about self-discipline. Verses three through six talk about if we really know this truth, we're not trying to impress God. We're not trying to impress other people. We're not taking ourselves too seriously. We're leaning completely on the grace of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ, and we're rejoicing in him. We're not trying to prove anything to God. We're not, because, because we know that the work's already been done. We're completely satisfied. We're completely blessed because the work has been done and now I am in Christ and he is my advocate because he was my propitiation. And I live a life of freedom. And now when it comes to serving God, I don't got to, I get to. We love him. We, we, we realize what he's done for us, that I was lost. I couldn't save myself, but here's what he's done. He's my advocate. He's sticking up for me every day. And now I get to serve him. I get to love him. I get to sing to him. I get to talk with him. I don't got to. I get to. Like say Angie calls me up and says, let's, you know, do you want to, go out to dinner you know let's go have a good t let's have fun tonight honey I'm like oh, I gotta do this you know no she's my beautiful wife I don't got to I get to be with her I get to hang out with her 
And when you love somebody, it's not a got to, it's a get to. And so John is saying, if we know the gospel, how's it going to, it'll come out in, uh, it, it brings, you know, a life of holiness. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not him in him. He talks about whoever keeps his word, knows God, loves God. He's perfected in him. We become like Jesus. We, when we know the gospel, we gravitate towards Jesus and we walk like he walks. We, we, we start to live like Jesus lived. And what he's talking about is there is a way that you can know that's what John is saying. There's a way that you can take personal inventory and know if you really know the gospel. And we know that we really know the gospel when we are bummed about sin and, and we're disturbed by unholiness. We're disturbed by the things in our life. See, we're all going to sin, but how do we, man, how do we view that? And then our lives, are we living lives of, of obedience to God? And only you can take that inventory. And what he doesn't want us to do is, okay, fix up your life. What he wants us to do is get in touch with the gospel. Get in touch with the fin finished work of Jesus Christ. And then allow that to change everything about you. To bring that transformation. And what he's talking about here is we can have that assurance we can have the assurance of salvation. We can't live life, live a life that we are meant to live unless we really know this. The life that Jesus has called us to until we have this assurance because we're going to always trying to please God. I mean, just, I mean, we'll be trying to impress God. We want to please him. And so John brings in the reality. And he's saying that you can know that you know him. You can know that you know him by the way your lives are being lived. You can have that assurance. See, we obey because now we know that we're free. Because we know that we have God's acceptance. We know that when we do sin, that he has paid the penalty. And so it makes us. It's relationship now. It's being like a child of God. God is not going to love you any more in heaven than he does right now. When we get to heaven, he's not going to say, oh, man, Pete barely made it in. Well, now that he has this glorified body and everything, I can really be his friend. No, God's not going to love me any more in heaven than he does right now, and nor you. And when you discover that, it changes everything. Absolutely everything. And that's what John wants the reader to, to know. When we really know the gospel, we will have a character that moves closer to Christ. That will live life without guilt. And will live, will be able to manage disappointments and discouragements. Because we know who we belong to and we lean completely on him. Guys, the work's done. It's finished. And so is this sermon. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. And we know that it wasn't cheap grace. There was nothing cheap about the blood of Jesus. 
There was nothing free. In the cross, it all cost. It all was more expensive than we even understand. So we thank you, Lord, for paying the penalty, paying the debt, becoming a substitute on the cross. But not only becoming a substitute then for all mankind, but in turn giving us eternal life, giving us your righteousness, and giving us your power the power of the Holy Spirit to obey you, to please you, to serve you. Not out of compulsion or a meritotic sort of way, but Lord, we, we can just serve you out of the pure joy because we are in touch with your love that's for every one of us. Praise you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said, Amen. Let's all stand.